basis. Uh, let me open us with prayer. Father, it is good to come together to uh, consider uh, the effect of the fall on a broken world. We look at uh, aging and uh, uh, approaching uh, death. Uh, we, we realize that that is all a result of the fall, a result of our sin entering the world. We just pray that uh, uh, that you would be with us this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds and teach us uh, uh, what you would have us to understand. And ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Nice to be here again. Um, oh, I don't know. Okay. Am I on yet? Yeah, okay, I'm on. All right. So, okay, uh, Frank, thanks for handling the microphone for me because David's out of town, which means I can talk about him. Because We'll he, send him a bill. He asked me, please, not to mention him during my lessons because I usually embarrass him. Now, I don't understand that. You all know me. How could he possibly be embarrassed by me? But anyway, so yesterday morning, I once again got in, the dark, got in touch with the dark side. The dark side of Patty Porterfield, of course. Um, I woke up uh, not wanting to wake up because it was just barely getting light, which is about the time I wake up anyway, but I was still sleepy. And I couldn't breathe. And my nose was all stopped up. So I keep a little container of that um, that's salty kind of stuff, you know, that you can spray. Yeah. So I got up swung my legs over the side of the bed, took the top off, started to spray, and the whole thing burst, went all over my nightshirt. I got out of bed really fast and, and ran into the bathroom, tossed it in the sink, had to, just went ahead and got dressed. Why not? I was soaked. And uh, then I went out to the kitchen to make myself some coffee, and the coffee maker wouldn't work. Um, I was very annoyed by this time. So then... I decided, well, I'll just drink some orange juice, and then I'll figure out what's wrong with this little machine I I have there. So I got the orange juice out. It was a full bottle, which I had opened the day before. I was walking across the kitchen floor, and I shook it up, and it flew all over the kitchen because the cat, you you women know about this probably. Most of you have done this before. And at at this time, I stopped in the middle of the floor. I said a few choice, four-letter words, Uh, not at all becoming, I realized, I started to cry. I was totally angry, totally frustrated. And then I stopped and thought, what are you doing to yourself? And I realized I was definitely in touch with the dark side. I had let that kind of an annoyance upset me to the point where all the bad things that can possibly happen to you happen to you, to me when you're under stress, which is why I'm going to give you some some material on stress and what it does to us. This is also a suggestion of David's, so you can blame him if this doesn't go over. He said he thought that you people, being very intelligent, would like some of the stuff that I study. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to let you have it here. Uh, The onset of stressful events biologically activates the sympathetic nervous system and triggers the release of stress response hormones, cortisol, norepinephrine, and adrenaline. The release of these hormones sharpens the senses, deepens respiration, quickens the pulse, tenses the muscles to prepare the body's defenses against the perceived stressful, life-threatening situation. Prolonged 
periods of stress overload the brain with chronic high levels of these potent stress response hormones whose release is originally intended for short-term emergency fight-or-flight situations. Therefore, when chronic stress persists, as I know some of you have, brain cells are damaged and eventually killed. The result is an increase in the rate of wear and tear to biological systems and brain regions frequently activated during stress. The adverse effects of chronic stress are the following. Brain shrinkage, abnormal glial cell function, and in severe cases of chronic stress, the immune system is compromised, which escalates injury and disease risks. When stress is prolonged, the brain is negatively affected, and so is normal glial cell function. Now, I deal with patients all the time who exhibit all of this. It has long been believed that chronic stress is a primary contributor to premature aging. Now we have some research, this is fairly recent by the way, who shows how this connection might work. In a study of 39 women ages 20 to 50 years, who had been experiencing severe chronic stress for many years from caring for a child suffering from a serious chronic illness, it was found that structures inside their cells were different from those of 19 very similar women whose children were healthy. A structure called a telomere sits like a cap at the end of a chromosome. Each time a cell divides, the telomeres get shorter. With the natural aging process, the telomeres eventually get so short that the cells can no longer divide and they die. The longer a woman has been caring for a sick child, the shorter her telomeres, the lower her level of telomerase, and the higher her levels of oxidative stress. This would go for any kind of caretaking that you are doing. The perception of how stress, much stress one is under appears to be very important. The greater a woman's perception of her stress level in this study, the worse she scored on the above factors. When women with the lowest levels of perceived stress were compared to women with the highest perceived stress, the latter had telomeres equivalent to someone 10 years older. Now, that to me is very telling. It also says that we can, uh, with, with training, we can perceive our our uh, stress a little differently. One of my jobs as a therapist is to take people who come to me and change their attitudes, help them change their attitudes. I can't do it. But we change how people think about what's going on in their lives. One frequent symptom of acute or chronic stress is insomnia. With the severity and frequency of stressors as well as the individual's response contributing to the developing of ongoing problems with sleep, Psychosocial stressors, chronic exposure to minor stressors, and work-related stressors all contribute to the development of insomnia. Compared to normal sleepers, insomniacs show increases in metabolic rate, body temperature, heart rate, as well as higher levels of cortisol and catecholamines, suggesting increased activity of the stress response system. And loss of sleep can produce changes that resemble the effects of advanced age or the early stages of diabetes, even after less than one week. Now, the, the reason I'm telling you all this is that stress is serious. It is very serious. We have tools to deal with it. By the way, you heard me mention, if you, if you were uh, able to listen to that, cortisol. This is for the teenagers in here. 
One of the problems with America's teenagers not sleeping is that they are addicted to TV, the computer, uh, and in, in games and video games and stuff like that. Probably not my people in here, but some. And if you look at television, you should turn off your TVs and you should turn off your computers a couple of hours before you go to bed. Now, that's not going to set well with people in, maybe in here. It doesn't set well with the people I work with because that's what they do. They sit and they watch TV. Or I just say, why don't you get a light, you know, which doesn't go over very well anyway. But uh, <laughs> you, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Say that again. I said you have ceased preaching and started meddling. (laughs) See, Chuck, I I saw you come in the door and I knew you needed this. (laughs) I did. So anyway, what I'm I'm telling, and I want you to hear this, and then then I'm going to open it up to the rest of you. Noise pollution is a cardinal enemy of successful aging. The constant roar of motors and engines and machines can harm the psyche as well as the inner ear. But an equally dangerous and far more insidious form of noise pollution is found inside virtually every American home, TV, often accompanied by radios, VCRs, DVDs, and video games. It's a rare home that isn't plagued by such sounds 18 hours a day. And this is a relatively new phenomenon. Seventy or eighty years ago, people enjoyed a much quieter life. The still of the night was broken only by the sounds of music or conversation. Today, the still of the night is little more than a quaint cliché. I have people that I work with who ask me why I live out in the country by myself, no one around me. It's the best thing I ever did for myself. I don't get lonely. I love it. I have quiet time. I'm with people all the time at work. I want that quiet time. I look out my windows and I see God. I experience the quietude that we have evidently lost the ability to experience. Now I'm going to open this. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, A lot of us got to experience some of that quiet in the last week, our power went off on Friday night and didn't come back on until Thursday morning. So we got to experience quiet, and I can tell you the hum of the air conditioner is far greater. It's far nicer. It's far more enjoyable. <laughs> so far, I'm batting zero. <laughs> okay. I, I understand what you said, but... but uh, in the modern world, we trade off, and uh, uh, yeah. when it's 100 degrees outside, uh, I'm not really interested in trading quiet for my air conditioning. No, most of us aren't. Um, okay, I want to open this up now, and I want to ask you to be open and honest like you've been in here for the last three weeks and tell me what has happened to you. Can you tell the, what the brain-body connection has been in your lives in times of great stress. Do you have any idea what happened to you? Do you remember if you're not in it now? What about lack of sleep? I just want to hear what some of you were going through. I know some of you. (laughs) 
Wait, here's a, here, wait a minute. Cheryl. I think um, the stressful times in my life have driven me to depend on God a lot more than when I'm capable and have it all together. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay, over here, too. Okay. I have a very recent one where I took care of my mother-in-law for by myself, and she has Alzheimer's. So it was just me and her, and there was no conversation. Um, she had music taped, and she played, but I did not sleep. I usually go to bed, and I'm out. Mm-hmm. But I did not sleep one night all the way through. I was up several times during the night. And just knowing that I had that responsibility, and I felt it at the end of the week. So it, you know, I was just not calm. Um, I really couldn't go out of the house to even take a walker. And they live out pretty much in the country. But it was quiet, but it still was not the same. I mean, I, I felt that stress. So you really knew it? I knew it, yes. Okay. I was very glad to be home. <laughs> Over here. Rachel, I think. Um, Lately, I've just noticed, I mean, I just graduated from high school, um, and there seems to be a huge pressure on teenagers lately um, to just be the best and do as many classes or as many extracurricular activities as you can fit into a 24-hour day. Um, And it's draining. I took five AP classes this year. Um, I was in governor's school. I did all these other things. And so I had like up to upwards six hours of homework every night. And uh, it got to the point where my family didn't want to talk to me anymore because I was so stressed out and emotional. And so I would stay in my room in the basement. And, um, and I would just break down in tears because I, can't, I couldn't handle just the pressure of performing. And just because there's this expectation a lot of times with teenagers that they have to just be better than anyone else. So they have to do the best classes, do the best work that they possibly can and get into that best college or do whatever they can to get there. Um, it's just it's too much seeing kids like break down because of the stress and it's not, it's not healthy. Thank you. It's so nice to hear from one of our teens and hear someone who's been through this. I've said this so many times. We are not doing good things to our teenagers. We are really not, and our children. That We're forcing them to grow up too fast. We are forcing them to have a, a, live a pace of life that I'm not, I couldn't have stood it when I was a child. I don't see how I could have. And yet that's what's expected if you want to get into one of the best schools. And so... Those, those were symptoms of stress, definitely. At least you recognize it and you understand what's behind it. Uh, now you're going into another stressful situation, and that's the university setting. And uh, I was talking to Rachel before this class started and telling her how sad it is that our universities are hotbeds of anti-Christianity for the most part. So she had put, better put on the armor of God. She's going to need it. Um, that's also another sad thing. Um, we don't. We look around. We see our entire families are stressed. We have children committing suicide. This is incredible to me. What's going on? Um, so, we are not immune to the stress in here, in this room, 
even with all that we know, with all the tools we have to work with. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. One of the difficult things about this issue is that um, many of us live in uh, settings and situations where pushing hard and running hard all the time is something that is viewed as an asset. You know, well, he's a hard worker. He's doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and, you know, but I have a friend that always challenges me. Uh, you can tell him uh, I'm stressed. He says, uh, remember, remember your margins. You've got to have margins. You can't continue. And each one of us has a different threshold, but you can only, you can only run so hard so long. Um, and I notice even at the ripe age of 59, that when I'm under stress for a long time, I start becoming forgetful and I'm talking with someone and I can't recall. Uh, I, I like to have, use the right word. I can't recall a word that describes exactly what I want to say and I can't recall it. But that happens when I'm under a lot of stress. It's it's uh, it, there's, there's definitely a um, there's definitely a change in the function of my brain. And I've got I've got nothing to spare there. So so I got to watch it. <laughs> You speak for a lot of us. Go ahead. There's one over here. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know whether I have a whole lot to say uh, except to Rachel. Um, it doesn't get any better. Um, so at oh, some point, at some point in time, uh, knowing that we're going to have to deal with it, and we're going to have to know how to, you know, the term 30, 20 years, 20, 30 years ago was stop and smell the roses. I mean, you know, Patty, you live out in Afton, we live in Afton, and it's it's really quite relaxing. <clears throat> I mean, we have a traffic jam on our road when two cars pass. I mean, it's, you know, we're just, it tends to be a slower pace. And just being able to go outside at night and talk about pollution without light pollution, see the stars, see what, you know, the what God has created out there, not have another, I mean, we can turn lights out at our house and we can't see any light except the stars or the moon. And, and just that's relaxing. And um, as far as the noise pollution and being able to, um, you know, shut stuff off. I mean, I'm, I'm a radio addict. I mean, I listen to talk radio all day and drive my wife nuts. But, um, you know, on the lighter side, does that mean when my wife wants to sh- me to share with her, I can tell her it's not that I don't want, that I want to be quiet? <laughs> no, okay. Thank you. I lived in inner city Philadelphia for a few months. I was uh, going to school at the time and uh, had an internship there. And um, one thing I noticed was. I never saw the stars, ever. I never, I also noticed that the night was filled with sounds, but they weren't the sounds I was used to, owls and things like that. They were ambulances, screams, fire trucks, fighting, uh, any, any other sound you can think of that, that you don't want to hear during the night. It was never quiet. I quickly learned that the city was not for me. I would not want to live in a city. You think of the number of people we have living in our major cities. And I think that a lot of our, frankly, I think a lot of our problems now are not uh, political as much as they are urban versus rural. I mean, 
the urban life does something to you and it's not good. So, and kids, a lot of kids think they need to move into cities because it's exciting. Well, <laughs> it may be exciting for a while, but that's about it. Anybody else? A neurologist once told us that if you have no stress, you'll be dead. So I guess, uh, really... Hey, we must have a lot in here. I'm I'm guessing, really, that um, we are going to face that. So my question would be um, mechanisms to cope with it through Christ. Um, What kinds of things do people do? So that they come out feeling okay, even though we know we're going to face stress. All of us have had it. Um, And it really depends sometimes, I think, on our expectations of ourselves. Not so much the peer pressure or the expectations of others. But I have one daughter who expected herself to be perfect all the time. And I I don't think I did that to her. So um, I think understanding and being able to come up with ideas of how to cope with it through Christ is what I would be interested in. This is great because you're reading my mind. This is what I was going to get to. Okay. First, I want to say that I, I don't want to come off as I'm doing this perfectly because I'm not. But Jesus answered this. He said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will wear. I know what you need. Um, I think, kind of speaking to what Rachel opened up, that point at which we trust God and we look at what has to be done and we look at what we expect of ourselves and we say, I can't do it. I can't. And we say, God, I need you to be involved here. I need you to take over. I need you to help me through this particular day with the particular things of this day and not be stressing over what's tomorrow and the next day and the next day because you don't know what that's going to be. It all changes. And But God knows, and we can trust him. Thank you. at some point we're going to have to go countercultural because the culture is so pushing this and it infl- I mean when we move from DC to down here being in DC for 23 years the first thing you ask is what do you do and when you ask parents what they're doing they get this litany of things that their kids are doing and their list this litany of things that they're doing and we all think it's wonderful though some of us think it's a little bit intimidating And I think part of it's going to be, we're going to have to change the questions we ask each other. As opposed to when you meet somebody, what are you doing? What are you doing to prepare for college? How are you staying busy this summer? To change that, those questions into terms of how are you doing? When are you having time for friends? You know, a whole different base when... I quit homeschooling my kids and I wasn't working. And to this day, I have people saying, well, what are you doing to keep yourself busy? And what are you doing with your time? And I get tongue-tied. And it's not that I'm not doing anything. It's just that the things that I'm doing aren't things that you can put a checklist on. 
but I'm available. And that's a huge thing. When you're super busy and stressed, you're not available for people. So I really think we have to change our thinking in terms of what we value and how we question one another. Good point. Good point. Change your thinking. Well, to hear Frank say he got power on Thursday morning, we got Arizona Wednesday night. But uh, part of this is to tell you or confess to you half of my career at the power company was uh, in operations and dealing with exactly what they w went through this week, planning for it and, and trying to manage it. And if you want to see some stress, okay, walk into it. It's unreal. Um, but the Lord used that in my case to show me that I did not have control of everything I thought I had control of. And the best thing out of all that uh, that has helped me when I left and came back to the farm um, is to learn firsthand by looking at the window when it's not raining and the crops are not growing. And you realize that you got payments to make and, you know, where's it going to come from? You know, how dependent we are on God. And as soon as we learn that lesson, he, he, he can stop teaching us. I'm a firm believer that God gives me whatever I need to teach me to rely on him. And if I want to plow through it, he'll put it out there. And if I let go of it, and trust him, it's interesting how many things come just fall in your lap. Fall in your lap. And, and you know, it, it's a five letter word to me. It's called trust. That's great. Well, well somebody, go ahead. Okay, here, I, I made this list out because Chuck is checking up on me. He wants to make sure that I'm doing this theologically correctly. I, I did a, a little list. These are things that um, I say during the night when I wake up and, and my own personal demons take over. Uh, Psalm 127.2 It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. I love that phrase. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Proverbs 3:24 When thou liest down thou shalt not be afraid yea thou shalt lie down and thy sleep shall be sweet Psalm 4:8 I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou Lord only makest me to dwell in safety Isaiah 26 verse 3 Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee the trust word. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We know these things. You know these things. We can't always do that. We can't. Sometimes we just don't. Have you ever wanted to be miserable? <laughs> yeah. 
Some people want, let me tell you a little story about my mother. My mother was chronically depressed. She was also drinking and taking drugs, prescription drugs. Uh, she had very, very bad headaches, very bad, the kind that made you cry out all the time. Nothing seemed to touch them, so she tried to self-medicate herself, but she tried to self-medicate. And then one day, well, I would call her, being a glutton for punishment, I would call her in the hopes that one day she'd tell me she was happy. She would threaten suicide. She knew that she got to me. She didn't affect everybody, but she got to me. And so one day she called me and I said, how are you? Long question with my mom, Debbie. And, she, and I thought, I'm going to hear it now. You ask for it, so go ahead and listen. And she said, oh, I feel great. I feel wonderful. Glory be to God. This, you know, my prayers are working. This is it's working. And she said, yeah, the doctor gave me a new medication that is making me feel so much better. Wonderful. A few days later, I call her again, and she's very depressed. And I said, what about your new medication? And she said, I flushed them down the john because I don't like being happy. Yes. Now, if you think that that's uncommon or wrong, in, this, in the profession I'm in, we call this secondary gain. We find that a lot of people don't ever get depressed if they live alone. It is when they live with somebody else who responds to the depression that they sink into the depression. Because what do we do? What do you do to depress people? When a person is depressed, what do you do? What do you say? You try to console them. You give them attention. You say, oh, what's wrong? Is there anything I can do? And so what we are doing actually is reinforcing this. Uh, I know that a lot of this I, I may be foreign to some of you that, that sometimes in the secular world of counseling, we, we take a little different tact. But there's also something else in my world that I notice, and that is that every single patient that I have wants the same thing, and that is peace of mind. They want peace of mind. But sometimes they fight it. They fight it with everything they have. I had an elderly lady uh, I'd been seeing for a long time. This was several years ago, and she was miserable. She was so wretchedly miserable. And uh, so she said to me one day, I want what you have. And I said, well, then I can tell you what it is that you're asking for. You're asking for the peace that passeth understanding. You know what she said? I don't want that. I know what you're talking about. I don't believe that stuff. She died a couple of years ago, as far as I know, still not believing. I hope that she did, but I don't think so. I had another elderly patient a long time ago, and she was very rich. She had everything you could possibly want, but she was angry and bitter, and she had everything in the way of money. She alienated all of her friends. Uh, and she, I suggested, why don't you try going to church? And she said, well, I've never believed that stuff. But she did. She went to church. And then she got angry with the church. She said, they want me to become a member. 
why should I become a member of a church? She said, I, I put $5 in the offering plate every Sunday morning. What more do they want? She belonged to two country clubs. She's exceedingly wealthy. So we're dealing with people who, or I am anyway, who are not coming from where you're coming from. They come from a totally different place, and it can be very difficult uh, and, and very challenging. But I love what I do, and I wouldn't do anything else, but still, it can be very, very challenging. So what else can we do when we're in times of stress? We're helping each other now, I think. By the way, Rachel, I saw a, a, a talking to a teenager the other day, 19. She's already finished one year of college, and she was telling me about all the stresses that she's under. And uh, I said, uh, wow, you know, this, she's not a patient. I said, I wouldn't want to be 19 again. And she looked at me and said, I wouldn't want to be 78. <laughs> The verse you quoted, it says, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. I think that's uh, forcing ourselves to give thanks. Getting up in the morning and saying, God, I don't feel thankful. I don't want to go to work today. But making yourself think, okay, I've got a family. I've got people who love me. And forcing yourself to start listing out what you should be thankful for. And... Giving thanks to God on a daily basis. I think that combats a lot of it. Um, remembering the good things, remembering what to be thankful for, and then proceeding to give thanks even if you don't feel like it. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I was wondering who was going to bring up that with Thanksgiving. Go ahead. I'm thinking of this whole secondary gain thing that you were talking about with depression and thinking about it in stress. And there's a certain payoff that comes to it because if you look at somebody who's super busy and or you look at somebody whose kids are in 25 things and you look them in the eye and say, why don't you say no? What, there's a lot of good things out there. You can't do them all. What are you willing to stop doing? And they'll give you a blank stare. Well, I can't stop doing any of them. Well, the fact of the matter is you can. There are things to do to, to, relieve, to reduce the stress in your life, but there's gain that comes with stress too. I mean, there's a certain amount. Everybody thinks you're wonderful and you're doing all this stuff and you're achieving all of these things. And at some point we have to say at what cost. And are you willing to say no and realize there are gains that come by saying no that we will never realize if we continue in that stress pattern? But that's a gutsy move to take, and especially in this Mm -hmm. culture. I'm not saying that lightly, but at some point, we've got to say enough. You're right. One thing that my wife and I do is we hold each other accountable on that very thing. For example, if my wife came home today and said, yeah, I've been asked to take on some new duty, uh, you know, with a club or with church or with whatever it might be, then I would ask her, 
your schedule is full, so what are you going to give up in order to take that on? And she will ask me the same question. So we sort of think, okay, if your schedule is full and somebody asks you to take on something new, what are you going to give up in order to be able to do that? And uh, that's just a little reality check that we do that's been very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, along those lines, what Frank said there, I don't know if we experienced it, uh, church life would be a source of stress. Uh, a lot of people burst out, out doing church things. So you got people say no, it's hard, hard to know people in church, but you'll be able to do it as well, too, sometimes. Thank you for that. You know, I, I, you all the, who were here and heard the testimony that I gave uh, some months ago, I was under a terrible lot of stress from this church that I felt from this church when I first joined because I just didn't have time to do all the things that I see you people do. I just didn't have time. And I, felt, I kept comparing myself to everybody else. I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing that, and I can't cook anymore. I'm terrible at it. And so I was, I was comparing myself, and I was down on myself. I was feeling really depressed. About it. I was feeling really down about it, saying, I must not be a Christian. I, I can't measure up. And then I would go to work, and work was where I was superwoman. Everybody, talk about secondary gain. I get it at work all the time. I mean, you're 78, and you're still working? Wow. You know, and uh, I work with these students all the time. I get a lot of secondary gain from working with them. And I love them. They love me. What more can you ask? So we can be stressed in almost any situation, even the most actually benign. All right, if nobody raises their hand, I'll keep talking. Uh, yeah. One of the things that, that we have done in the leadership in church that, not something we started, but to just come down to us is the sabbatical. And, you know, we're getting ready to give us a uh, couple of months of sabbatical, a chance to, to, to sort of put that stress aside for a little bit and, you know, recharge. And it's something, you know, uh, our home group leaders, you know, get the summers off. Um, and hopefully after a couple of years would take, would take a little more time off than that. Uh, we all need to take, take time, you know, to recharge a little bit. And I know that the, the first time I took a sabbatical, I didn't take it long enough, and I didn't drop everything for a while. And boy, by the time the second one came around, I said, take me off the email list. I don't want to know anything for a year. So, uh, you know, we have to learn to, to, to balance those things. You know, with, speaking of Essen, he, he gets to see me at my worst all the time. Uh, he saw a display of it Friday. I guess he, I'm sure he noticed it. Uh, he wouldn't say anything about it. He was with his family over at my pool, and I was on my way out in the car, and I was uh, usually with my bravado being childish because I want everyone to know that I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone to help me do anything. And I was uh, basing on my poor son David who I dearly love and who's absolutely wonderful to me. And I said to, to him and his family, you know, David treats me like I need help, and I don't need help. I'm going after bird seed, and he, and he says, Mom, now I was going to Lowe's. He said, you get them now to help you lift those bags. I said, I'm perfectly capable of lifting those bags by myself. I don't need anyone to lift. Of course, I pulled a muscle in my back, uh, and I thought about it. I thought pride goeth before a fall. 
But it's so, it seems to be so important to me to show that I can do it. And I said, John Benich, I told this, and for example, he, he practically lifts me out of a car when I get out of his car because he thinks I can't get out by myself. Now, it takes me, well, David has the eight-second rule. I was telling John about it. He said, if it takes you more than eight seconds to get out of my truck, you should, probably shouldn't be riding in it. Well, now, <laughs> so, see, I told you I was going to tell you everything about him while he's gone. <laughs> so when we're older, we do need help. We need to accept it graciously. I appreciate it, John, when you, when you want to help me. But at the same time, there's a part of me that says we get childish. We get like little kids again. Mom, I can do it myself. I don't need you to help me. And then we fall on our faces, you know, or something. Like I was saying a couple of weeks ago, old people fall. That's what we do. But that's the fallacy, Patty. We don't wait until we're old to know we need help. We need help. From birth to death, and as, the sooner we learn that lesson, the more graciously we can move through life. My mother had breast cancer, and uh, at the end of her treatment, it was clear that things weren't going well, and she was losing her fight. And my father had no idea how to cook. They were there together. You know, my brother was in Texas, I'm in Northern Virginia, and uh, her friends became aware that she was losing her battle, and she was so weak. I mean, all of her pots and pans were on the countertop, so she wouldn't have to stoop and lift and all this, but she was losing her ability to do even, she didn't have the strength anymore, and they started bringing her food, and it made her angry that they wanted to help. How dare they intrude in her space? But what about my father? He needs to eat too. I mean, this is a stressor, a huge stressor for him. We just need to learn that lesson early on. There are things we need help through all our lives with, all of our lives, not something we learn at the age of 65, you know, we need to learn that lesson very early. That's a great point, Alice. You know, it is hard to accept help, especially hard for people like me who are wanting to give it all the time. It's very hard for me to say, I need help. Um, I hope that we're doing it in here with each other. I, I hope that we're learning how to do that. Don, you had something? I'm just going to give you a hard time, which is nothing new. John's just being chivalrous, helping you out of the car. It's like when Lynn and I go somewhere, if I am of a of proper mind, I will walk around and open her door for her. And if she is of proper mind, she will wait for me to do that. But, uh, I mean, I can, I, I, you're not a feminist, are you? I mean, in the 60s term. Um, I can remember opening the door for a woman. I mean, I would have opened it for anybody. And she chastised me. She said, you don't have to open the door just because I'm a woman. You know, it's like, well, I'm not opening the door because you're a woman. I'm opening the door because you're a human being. You know, so we have to learn how to treat people and how to, how to accept and how to do what we can do, but certainly accept other people's help graciously. 
I have to get all my David stories in now because he's going to be back. Uh, he had the same thing happen to him, Dom, and he was in um, working on his PhD over at UVA. He he um, came in one day and said, "Mom, would you mind telling me what it is that women want nowadays?" He said, "There was a girl in front of me in the engineering school, and she had her arms loaded with books, and I jumped ahead of her." and opened the door, and she looked at me with rage and said, I can open the door by myself. I don't need help from any man. Well, I said, just close it back up and let her struggle through it. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for because you may get it. So, well, it it is time. Did someone else have anything to say? Because it's time for us to close. And I want to read in closing this beautiful prayer from this book which many of you probably have this is a gift to to me from the Birchfields that he gave them to our home or they gave them to our home group and I love it the valley of vision and this is a prayer that I say at night and I say in the middle of the night um, blessed creator thou hast promised thy beloved sleep give me restoring rest needful for tomorrow's toil If dreams be mine, let them not be tinged with evil. Let thy spirit make my time of repose a blessed temple of his holy presence. May my frequent lying down make me familiar with death. The bed I approach remind me of the grave. The eyes I now close picture to me their final closing. Keep me always ready, waiting for admittance to thy presence. Weaken my attachment to earthly things. May I hold life loosely in my hand knowing that I receive it on condition of its surrender. As pain and suffering betoken transitory health, may I not shrink from a death that introduces me to the freshness of eternal youth. I retire this night in full assurance of one day awaking with thee. All glory for this precious hope, for the gospel of grace, for thine unspeakable gift of Jesus, for the fellowship of the Trinity. Withhold not thy mercies in the night season. Thy hand never wearies. Thy power needs no repose. Thine eye never sleeps. Help me when I helpless lie, when my conscience accuses me of sin, when my mind is harassed by foreboding thoughts, when my eyes are held awake by personal anxieties. Show thyself to me as the God of all grace, love, and power. Thou hast a balm for every wound, a solace for all anguish, a remedy for every pain, a peace for all disquietude. Permit me to commit myself to thee, awake or asleep. Amen.